speaking of wisdom, let's get started because that's my subtitle tonight is the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I take this directly from what Paul says to Ephesus. We're going to be in Ephesians 1 and I want to try to take the last nine verses of Ephesians 1, which begins in verse 15. And I think what we'll do to start, this is our seventh lesson in this. And I, I, I found that regardless of how long chapters are, whether it's the Gospel of John, 1 John, the, some of the stuff we've done together, is I, I tend to be around seven or eight lessons per chapter. I don't think it really matters um, how long the chapter is. I guess I just have this little internal clock that says um, that's how much time each chapter needs. So um, I don't... I don't I don't know why that is, but I'm still trying to figure that out if, there, if there's a reason for that. But I do feel compelled to try and squeeze this last segment in. So let's start in verse 15. I'm going to read New King James. Um, different translations are going to lay some of these words out different. That's typical. You guys understand that. and I think it's valuable to check them in, in different translations. But I want you to think about this before you start reading. This is, this is an odd spot for a prayer, but that's what Paul does. Normally, Paul will save a prayer for late in an epistle. He, he'll lay out his case. He'll teach. You get to the end of the epistle, and he'll pray for his audience. It's, it's kind of my preferred way to do it. A lot of times, people pray up front, then preach or teach. And I've been one for a long time that likes to put that prayer at the end. And I don't know why, other than I, I'd like to say I do it because Paul did it that way. That's not the case. I never really thought about it. Um, other than for me, it's an application thing. It's like lay the word out and then lay a prayer over it like pouring water over the seed. You put the seed in the ground when you garden or you plant something and then you put water on it. And I kind of feel like prayers that way. So this is an odd moment in a way for Paul to drop a prayer up front. It tells me in a way that Paul feels like he might need to water what he just said. And what he just said was this is your heavenly bank account. And we spent six weeks really covering the stuff that's yours in Christ. I, I mean, we don't have the kind of time it takes to go back over it, but if you look back through those 14 verses, a big chunk of that is all the stuff you get because you believe in Jesus. And, and it's this internal treasure chest of redemption and forgiveness of sins and the knowledge of your righteousness and a full inheritance and the, the good pleasure of knowing Him. And it's this this never ending, you, you never unpack it all. Maybe that's overwhelming for us. Maybe whenever we hear the goodness of God, it's too much and we need prayer on top of it. So it's, it's interesting that Paul right here decides, okay, I'm essentially going to pray over what I just said to you, even though we just got started. And, and I kind of feel like it's Paul believing that we need that saturation of prayer over the power of what's just been spoken. I can't imagine preaching a sermon and 10 minutes into the sermon going, you know what, we're going to stop right here and we're going to pray over what I just said because I think you need help comprehending it. I mean, I, I, to me, that's a bizarre, it would be a bizarre approach. So, But I want you to keep that in mind as you read this beginning in verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And I don't know what your translations look like, but I have a colon at the end of verse 16, which sort of denotes that what's coming next is, is this is everything that I've just said to you, here, here it comes in full body, all right? So the prayer 
that he doesn't stop praying starts in verse 17. And here's what it sounds like. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That word understanding is really old Greek. The oldest Greek we have there is closer to heart. The eyes of your heart be enlightened. There's even a worship song 20 years ago, Open the Eyes of My Heart, that was pulled from an alternate translation of Ephesians 1. The eyes of your heart or your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power. Notice this is all but one big sentence. which is We're breaking it into verses because it's more palatable, but it's one big prayer which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And these are just words for rule, authority, power, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He doesn't drop an amen in. He's not finished writing. That would be odd for Paul to put an amen before the letter is finished. But this was a big, long prayer. Chapter 2 is going to start with a conjunction, and you he made alive. So technically, you could say this whole letter is just Paul's prayer over his church, which is, which is good information to have when you consider that almost every letter Paul writes, he writes for a purpose. There's a problem in this church, there's information they need. There's something they need to clean up. Ephesus is not that way. Ephesians is, the, is one of the few, if not the only Pauline letter, where there's not an obvious problem with his audience. And what do you say to a people in, the Christian, in Christian circles? That's, that's an anachronistic statement. Paul wouldn't have called it Christian circles, but let's, for purposes of us, let's say it that way. What do you say to people in Christian circles who you don't have say, the obvious problems. You don't have the, the problems with church. You don't have problems with sin. What do you say? And I, I, I think in some ways what's sad about my profession is that I think a lot of us don't know what to say if we don't have something to pick on. Like if we don't have bad news to talk about or we don't see people sinning or we don't, um, you know, the right person's in office, the right person's in office. You know, we don't know what to do. And it's a sad commentary on, not on the gospel, because the gospel works. I think it's a sad commentary on us not understanding that our role is proclaimers of good news and that we don't have to have something to yell about, get mad about, get scared over in order to proclaim good news. I came up in a, in a ministry culture that we were, I don't want to say I was taught this. Some things you're taught by experience. You know, no one ever sits down to you and goes, okay, this is how you're supposed to preach. But every time you hear preaching, you learn how to preach, <laughs> whether you're taking notes or not. And I was taught, really, to find an issue and hone in on it and hammer at that issue. And then when you're finished, offer hope give people a way out of or around that issue. But you don't preach if you don't have an issue. Like, you come up with something. 
So you watch the news, you read the paper, you go to the coffee shop, you find out what's on people's minds, and then you get at it. And that's happening in, in, in the pulpit whenever you hear what's been on the news all week long, and that's the first 20 minutes of the sermon, or the first 40 minutes of the sermon, followed by a little good news. Now let me tell you about Jesus, who can, who can save you. And I think it's backwards. And then we, if we could start with the gospel, the proclamation of good news, we might find that we don't have time to address all of the news issues of the day because there's a treasure trove of 14 verses of good stuff that you have in the Lord. There's so much that you have in Christ that there's not enough time to tell you what Fox News and CNN's talked about last night. There's only enough time to talk about what Fox News and CNN talked about last night if you haven't been in the treasure trove. If you haven't unlocked the fullness of, of his goodness and his grace and his forgiveness and his righteousness and his justification and his victory and his finished work, then what are you going to talk about? Well, the low-hanging fruit is you got a problem and 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 here's what it is. And pound, 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 here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse, because there's enough verses to cover all kinds of stuff and then get to the end of it and talk a little bit about Jesus. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because it's not the way you read the Word. It's not the way I read the Word. There's a lot of listeners who are going through this journey with us, and they're going through the journey of trying to find the gospel, trying to hear the gospel, and trying not to, to be so swayed and so influenced by all of this that is, that is negative. So I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm just moved by the way Paul treats a church without an obvious fault. It's not to say Ephesus won't have fault. You get to the book of Revelation, they're one of the seven churches. They've left their first love. There's an idolatry issue possibly too that doesn't really get hammered in Ephesians but might get hammered in elsewhere elsewhere in some of his other letters. So, so how does he handle a church where he doesn't find the obvious flaw? Just dig in to the goodness of God and open up that treasure chest. Then how does Paul deal with a church that does have obvious flaws? Okay, Because if you want to know what that would look like, read Corinthians. And they're loaded with flaws. And yet, he opens with the cross of Christ. It's the wisdom and the power of God. Christ has been made unto us righteousness and wisdom and justification and redemption. He hammers away at the treasure chest before he starts to tell them what's going on. And it teaches me, okay, say you walk in a place with obvious problems. What should you do to start with? Tell them what they got in Christ. Lay some identity on people. Because in truth... If you're going to go into the wilderness, and the wilderness is everything from sin to drought to famine to problems to stress to break, breakups and heartbreak and bankruptcy and, and your kids have got problems and your marriage is on the rocks, if you're going to go into the wilderness, and you are, it'd be really good to go there with the identity, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And if that's the last thing Jesus hears when he comes out of the water before he goes into the wilderness, maybe the thing people need to hear when they come into the house of God is, here's who you are in Christ. I know you've forgotten who you are in Christ because you've been out here in the world and you've been trodden through the mud and you need your feet washed off. You've been walking this road of sin and filth and the world. So come on in here, slip your shoes off. Let's splash your feet off with the water of God's word. Let's show you that there's a better way. And I, I think it's, it's such a perfect layout for Paul. So I, just, I really want to hit 
two things in this little eight verse run. And I know there's a ton of stuff, but I've had a couple of weeks now to kind of think about where I wanted to land on this. And, and, and instead of trying to break it into two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, um, there's really just a couple of thoughts that I want to give. And it's, it's that in this prayer, look at verse 17 again, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and this is the key, and this is where we derive our title, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And I've been thinking about this and praying over this thought, and I'm coming to the personal conclusion that there's nothing more important as a believer in Jesus than the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And what I, what I mean by that, I know some stuff, okay? I know I got some verses memorized. I know some theological principles. I can help you out with a lot of Q&A. Um, I can't convince you of a resurrected Jesus by talking to you. And you can't do it either. Because you're going to go out here and talk to a lot of people, argue with people, debate people, persuade defend yourself. All that's fine. You don't make converts through conversation. They have to have a revelation of Jesus. Um, and, and the reason why that's so vital is like, it's like I've raised, Natasha and I raised two kids and raised them in the Lord as much as you can in that you introduce them to Christ and you live Jesus in front of them and you try to be what you say you are and try to do what you say you're going to do. That didn't guarantee anything and it still hasn't guaranteed anything. So what we pray and I know I actively pray this as, Lord, I'm not, I, I'm done trying to convince my kids. I'm not trying to convince Lucas or Lauren of Jesus. I try to live Jesus. I try to live Jesus in front of them. I try to live Jesus in front of their enemies and my enemies and my neighbor. And it's the best I can do. But here's what I do pray. Father, give them their own revelation of your love. I think it's vital that the Apostle Paul prays over his church. We're not talking about lost people. He prays over his church. I wish you guys had the, had the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's why I don't know that there's anything more important in your journey with Jesus. And you want to know why you should pray. Because I get this question a lot from people. It's like, what's the point of praying? Is God not going to do something, and then I pray, and then God decides to do it? But if I hadn't prayed, God wasn't going to do it? Um, what's that say about God? Or what's the point in, in all of us praying? Isn't one person praying enough? Why do we need five of us praying? Why ten of us pray? Is God moved when five people pray? Is he more moved when ten people pray? What if you got 20 people to pray? And so I think some of that's just us being kind of secular in the way we think because we're kind of making God out to be a reluctant father as like, oh, he'll move if you keep knocking on his door hard enough. I, don't, I think maybe we're missing the point. I think that one of the reasons Paul prays right here, because he's praying, is the prayer is that, Father, you continue to do what only you can do in every one of these people. I can only teach them and then live Jesus in front of them, but I can't convince them. I can't build their faith. You can do that. So I'm praying that you get past my words, that you go do the work that only you can do. And Father, that means that it's going to be your way. Because how he reveals himself to Jackson 
is different than how he reveals himself to Nola. Because Jackson has a different set of conditions that he lives in, and Nola has a different set of conditions that she lives in, and the Holy Spirit is is aware not only of where you live, but he's aware of the very you that lives there. You know, you know what I mean? He's, a, he's aware of the very essence of who you are, and therefore it's his responsibility. So I, I, I don't think it's wrong to pray, Lord, it's up to you to reveal yourself to this person. I don't, I don't save people. So if you will reveal yourself to X, Y, Z, You'll do it in your way, and Father, that's what I pray. How can I be a conduit for that? What could I be to him or her that looks like Jesus? And that's a prayer that where you become part of the spiritual formation, where you're now becoming pliable. You're like you're on the wheel, on the, on the potter's wheel, and the, the hands of the Spirit are shaping you. And whatever he shapes is what you come out to be, but we're yielding to that to say, if, if she's going to have a revelation of wisdom, a revelation of the Holy Spirit, a revelation of the love of God, where am I getting in the way? And praying like that has helped transform my own life and ministry because I found that sometimes my sermons were getting in the way. <laughs> so my sermons might be pulling the attention off of the love of God and onto people's issues. My sermons might be pulling people off of Jesus and onto me. Look at me, listen to this thing I learned, watch what I can do, and then there's less of Jesus and there's more of us. And so prayer is spiritual formation of, Lord, what part of me is in the way of wisdom, is in the way of revelation? Reveal that to me so that that part of me can die. That's going to the cross. What part, Father, of of what you want to say, um, say it, Father, in a way that, that moves him that moves her, and as Paul prays to the church at Ephesus, that they receive that spirit of wisdom and revelation in Christ. The other thing is the next verse, the eyes of your understanding, I told you that word there is heart, the eyes of your heart being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory. So I think these are really together. I'm going to, I want to try to lay these out together. Paul prays the spirit of wisdom, revelation in Christ. We're going, to, we're going to try to explore a little bit more in a moment what that means. He prays the eyes of their heart be enlightened. I think we peddle too much in knowledge. We're children of the enlightenment. Okay? For the last 250 years, we've been an enlightenment people. And that's changed the world. And the enlightenment mind has changed the world because it's made us scientific. It's made us um, students of history, mathematics, medicine, what that's done is open the world of possibilities and technology. I'm a fan of the Enlightenment. But I think that we've become so knowledge-driven that we're a little, we actually think the spirit realm is subservient to knowledge. So a lot of people think faith is like the last thing you need. What you need is to be really smart across the board. And then faith is kind of what fills in the gaps. Or when you're really pessimistic, you say, faith is for the weak. Faith are for people who don't really can't really think. Faith's for people who don't really know anything, and they use it as a crutch. Their faith's a crutch, and um, they if they were smarter, they wouldn't need all that because faith's in the invisible. And in it's almost like we we've so bemoaned the spiritual at for knowledge, and I think we've put 
so much into knowledge that we don't have a lot of room for revelation and the revelation that comes from knowing the Holy Spirit, that comes from knowing Christ. And I think we're backwards. I, I, really, I really do. I think that we've taken the wisdom that comes from the Spirit and we've put it as the last thing we get instead of looking for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to add it to our knowledge. So when the Bible talks about we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter's fond of that statement, to grow in grace and in knowledge. It's the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. So it's not just getting smarter. Go get as smart as you can get. Great, wonderful. But the grace and the knowledge of knowing Jesus, that's the eyes of the understanding of our heart, not just the understanding of our mind. And... When you're dealing with the knowledge of the heart, you have to deal with people on the heart level. And so I think some of the reasons why we're frustrated at learning how to follow the Spirit is because we're only trying to deal with people intellectually. We're just trying to challenge people intellectually. We're not listening to people's hearts. And so this is a problem among leadership. It's because leadership is we want to pour knowledge into people so that you, you do better. Leadership sometimes has a problem listening to the heart of the sheep. They just want to keep the sheep in the right field. You know, they just want to get the flock bigger, harvest the wool, all the, all those things. But to listen to the heart. Why was Jesus unique? Um, well, there's a lot of great reasons, but there's also a very simple one that gets missed a lot. Um, we don't sit around and talk a lot about Jesus' knowledge. How smart was he? Like, like, was he really good at history? Did he know how many languages could he speak? I mean, there are certain things we can pick up about Jesus' knowledge that are there, but we don't think about it. He was obviously literate. He reads in Luke 4 from Isaiah. That's rare in his day. He's in the small sort of upper crust intellectually to even be able to do that. We don't know if he can write. He can doodle. He does in John 8 when he doodles in the sand. So I don't, I don't know what he writes, but we don't, we don't know what his... We don't know how many languages that he knows. We, don't, we know he didn't have a degree. So my point is that when we think about Jesus, we don't think in terms of knowledge. The thing that we miss about Jesus is that Jesus didn't listen with an intellectual ear. Jesus listened with his heart. And what causes us the most trouble in, the, in our modern message when we preach Jesus is we try to preach Jesus to people's intellect and instead of just preaching the Jesus that, had, that opened his heart to people. And so Jesus was vulnerable constantly. He allowed himself to be vulnerable. He cried in front of people. He was silent when it would have been more conducive to have an answer. Um, when I look at those parts of Jesus... It would be easy in the modern setting to think that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. He's not using social media properly. You know, he doesn't understand how to defend himself right. But then I look through a different set of lenses and I think Jesus, of course, knew exactly what he was doing because Jesus moved through the world as someone who listened with the eyes of his heart. He watched with the eyes of his heart. John 4, I must needs go through Samaria. That's a phrase that says, I have to go to Samaria. 
Yes, Jesus, but we're not supposed to go to Samaria. Our tradition is we don't go to Samaria. The Samaritans are bad. We don't want anything to do with them. We'll go out of our way to miss Samaria. He goes, I got to go to Samaria. You guys go do what you're going to do. I got to go to Samaria. He goes to sit on a well next to a woman at noon. Had five husbands living with a man she's not married to. This is the great John 4 story. He starts a revival in Samaria, and all he did was open the eyes of his heart. He ignored his intellect. He ignored his religion. He ignored his tradition. He opened his heart. You don't learn to do that on the news. You don't learn to do that on the internet. You don't learn to do that in university. None of that stuff's wrong. But we've put such a premium in the wrong spot. You don't learn how to listen to people's hearts intellectually. You need intellect. The more of it you have, the better it'll be. But it won't be better for listening to people's hearts. To listen to the heart is to find where people really live. So this, this thought hit me. And, and in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the last couple of weeks kept us from meeting just for the fact that I really feel like this week some things began to sort of pop for me in regards to wisdom and revelation and why it's important through this Pauline lens. Um, and so just I'm going to share a couple of those thoughts with you. And I, I don't have them completely worked out, but I'm, I'm wrestling through them. Um, and that it's this. Christ had the practice. Paul had the theology. Okay, I want you to think about that in, in terms of watch how Jesus moves through the world. He practices love, right? He practices loving the unlovable, forgiving the unforgivable. He practices turning the other cheek. He practices the cup of cold water. I mean, he doesn't just talk about feeding the hungry. He multiplies the bread, he doesn't just talk about forgiving people that are, are his enemy. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do while he's bleeding. Everything's practice for Jesus. There are times it's paper-thin theology. Read Mark. Mark's, Mark's writing like a man on fire. I mean, he uses the Greek derivative of the word for immediately 100 times in 16 chapters. Jesus immediately, 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 immediately. It's the Jesus that hardly ever talks. In Mark, he's just this whirling dervish, healing, touching lives, just town to town. By the third chapter, his family shows up and thinks he's crazy. So there's this frenetic pace to watching Jesus work. But he's the Jesus of practice. And I don't mean Jesus has no theology. Let me try to qualify this. I don't mean Jesus has no theology. If you sat through our Sermon on the Mount series, you know that Jesus' theology tops anything you can ever lay on the table. It's, it's beyond, a lot of it's even beyond us in in full comprehension. So I don't mean that. I'm just, I want to lay out a comparison first, okay? Jesus has practice, Paul has theology. And what I mean by Paul has theology is that Paul has, Paul gives you grace, he gives you redemption, he gives you justification, he gives you sanctification, he gives you eschatology, he gives you the Holy Spirit, he gives you the gifts of the Spirit, he gives you the fruit of the Spirit, he gives you the works of the flesh. There's no theology as rich, as thick, as deep, as wide as Paul. I mean, it's just, it's off the charts. He claims, I saw Jesus on the mount. I come down here with this message. This is what he told me to tell you. And then it's just chapter after chapter after just stuff the world had never heard. And it was, we're still preaching it. Two-thirds of our New Testament is Paul's theology. All right, 
Let's go back to Jesus. Jesus has theology, but Jesus once tells his disciples, there's a lot of stuff I want to tell you, but you're not ready for it. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead and guide you into all truth. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm doing a lot of things I'm not explaining. Okay? I'm not giving you scripture for everything I'm doing. I'm just doing it. I'm not explaining to you why I'm doing it. <clears throat> Practice without the theology. Like when Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more to the adulterous woman. What's the theology behind that? You're going to have a hard time coming up with it without quoting Paul. Paul is the theology. So Paul writes Romans and goes, there's, no, there's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's John 8. Why didn't Jesus say that? Jesus is practicing the love of the Father without the theology, for this cause, because when Jesus goes into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father, he then pours the Holy Spirit out on his church on the day of Pentecost. The very thing he told his disciples in John they needed in order to understand the things they couldn't understand is the very thing he gave them at Pentecost. It's the very thing John the Baptist in Mark 1 promises you're going to get. John looks at his audience and goes, I baptize you with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So when we come to Christ, the spirit of wisdom and revelation is the very thing that gives us the theology of how to love. So we know in our heart we're supposed to treat people right. We know in our heart we're supposed to help the poor. We're supposed to feed the hungry. We know it. We only push it out because everything else starts to call itself theology that has nothing to do with love. It has to do with building and growth and ministry and stuff and end of the world and the news. And then all that other stuff is peripheral. And if you're not careful, all that other stuff becomes liberal or too woke. Because I hear that when people talk about loving the, loving the unlovable. You go, oh, that's, all you people want to do is talk about loving the unlovable. I go, have you not read Jesus? I mean, have you not just explored a little bit of who he was and how he worked? You go, yeah, but Jesus never said that stuff. Of course he didn't say that stuff. Jesus is the practice of the love of God. Paul comes along with the theology. And when you start to walk into the realm of the Spirit, when you start to walk into the realm of the Spirit of wisdom and revelation, Ephesians chapter 1, you start to take the theology that you see Paul lay out, and it only makes sense in Jesus. Now, here's the real kicker to me. Jesus has the practice, he has the theology, he is the theology, but he doesn't give it to us until post-Pentecost. At Pentecost, we start to have the knowledge poured into us. Paul has the theology, but he's not great at the practice. So in some ways, Paul is the modern Christian. He has, the, he has a head full of theology, but he hasn't let his theology influence his practice sometimes. Now, I don't mean all the time, because we're not always all wrong. But sometimes we're wrong enough that it makes you wonder why we have theology. Like, what is the use of all this Bible study you're doing if you're not going to love people? You ever wonder about that? I do, a lot. Go, What's the use of all the degrees you have in theology if you don't, like, help poor people? Yeah. I mean, if it never crosses your mind to feed someone that's hungry, and the only thing you think is politics... You think politics before you think help them. What's the use of your theology? Like, why did you bother? Learn, why do you bother reading? 
if it isn't going to translate over into the practice of love, and I know, guys, this is risky, because I, I can tell you why we have a head full of theology, but it's hard in practice. Because the minute you practice it, somebody rips you off. Like you give somebody money and then you realize they didn't, they didn't really need that money for what they said they did. Oh, I feel like an idiot. See, I'm just contributing to the problem. That guy out there holding that sign is actually, I've heard this story a million times. That guy out there holding that sign, asking for money, he makes, that guy's making $200,000 a year. He's just out there holding that sign so he can get more money out of people. Don't you feel like an idiot now? And the reality is, is that the minute you practice your theology, you open your heart up to being crushed and looking like a fool. Welcome to following Jesus. Yeah. Because the moment you slide the bread across, a Judas is going to eat it. It's a guarantee that at some point someone is going to partake that hurts you, that stabs you in the back, and that stabs you in the front. And that's just the way that it is. And so we, have to make, we make a choice of love that's based upon what we know that the Father loves us, how the Father loves us, the, the carefulness to me is to not be trapped in having the theology that doesn't influence our practice. Because we've got Paul from time to time. i got to qualify this because I know someone's heard me. You're hearing me say this and thinking, how about a couple of illustrations where Paul has the theology but not the practice? Okay. Paul has the theology of in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free. But Paul can't come to grips with telling the church that slavery's wrong. Why not? Paul has, there's neither male nor female in Christ, but he still makes comments about women's subservience in the hierarchy of teaching in the church. And you go, well, Paul's a man of his times. Of course he is. Yeah, he is a man of his times. You know, um, Thomas Jefferson's a man of his times. He can write the Declaration of Independence, and he owns slaves. I mean, how can these truths be self-evident that all men are created equal except for the 600 I own at Monticello? I don't know how he can not put his theory into practice, but we all do it, and it's why we're so easy. That's why we're so good at spotting hypocrites, because we are one. I mean, at one point or the other, we all slide the mask on. It's why we're easy, it's easy to locate people go, oh, look, he doesn't live. And we love to do that in this era. Yeah, cancel people, go back, look at five years worth of tweets, find out who liked something they shouldn't have liked, expose it. You're a hypocrite. You're a fake. And, but we've all always been this way. It's just now it's just out there and people can track it and do something with it. What's the answer? The spirit, Paul prays it. What I really want you to have is the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. So that you start to look at people through your heart eyes instead of through your eyes, your, your theology eyes, your judgment eyes, your nationalist eyes, your male eyes, your racial eye, whatever it is. Because we all got lenses and you pop onto the front of that, those glasses by which we see the world. And Paul's not condemning the glasses. He's just saying what I really hope that is that you get a new pair. I hope that you learn to look at the world through the wisdom and the revelation of who Jesus is. And the real kicker, 18 and 19, latter part of the verse, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And so the third thing, so the first thing is know the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Second thing, 
that the eyes of your heart be enlightened. This is Paul's prayer. And finally, that you know your hope and that you know your rich inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. And so it's a, it's a layered prayer that really ends with this four-word kicker, toward us who believe. So what's that mean? That I am, that Paul's saying, I am praying that as you believe, these things happen. And so what I'm praying over you, all of you in this room, what I'm praying over the listener is the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Christ. It's Christ's job to do it. It's not mine. The eyes of your heart being enlightened, that you'll know you have an inheritance and the greatness of power, but that all of that becomes a reality as you believe. And there's no substitute for belief. There's no substitute for faith because faith is, a, is an activator in understanding what it is that God has done on your behalf. Let me run you, just go to Colossians 2 real quick. And we're gonna, we'll come back and land in Ephesians, but I want to give you a couple of thoughts from Paul's other letter that's some, some scholars really call Colossians um, a, almost a copy of Ephesians. It's so similar to what he writes to the church at Ephesus. Um, you're gonna, it sounds familiar, in fact. Um, in fact, I told you at the beginning of this Ephesians study that the book of Ephesians is sometimes thought to be Paul's letter to Laodicea. So watch what happens in verse 1. You might be dealing with the same book. I want you to know what a great conflict. This is Colossians 2, verse 1. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That sounds very much like Ephesians 1. Paul, in this situation, Paul just changes a word. He calls it the mystery of God that's in Christ, in whom is hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is the same prayer. So to the church at Colossae, Paul says, look, you and I haven't met face to face. That's how he ends verse 1. I'm really praying that you come into a knowledge of God's mystery that's given to you by God. And so the prayer hasn't changed to Colossae as it has to Ephesians. So I feel comfortable in saying that the prayer that Paul would pray over us is that you would come into the full knowledge of who God is and how much that he loves you and how much that he cares for you. I want to read for you. Let's read the first four verses of Hebrews. I... I to be honest, when I put this down as a text I wanted to go to, I did it for this reason, is that I really wanted to hammer inheritance for a second. To be honest, I don't feel that as strongly tonight as I did when I put this together, but I still want, don't want to miss the chance to read these four verses because I am a big believer that if you want to know what God looks like, you should look at Jesus. Um, in fact, I'm so much of a believer in that that uh, I'm, I'm, I've changed my... I used to kind of dance around it. You know, like people talk about the Old Testament. I go, oh, you know, there's different ways to interpret the Old Testament. And I'm okay if that's the way you want to dance, but I've done dancing around it. And now I just say to people, if what you're reading doesn't look like Jesus, move on to the next verse. 
You go, well, what are we supposed to do with that verse? You ain't supposed to do anything with it. Jesus opened the scriptures and showed them the things concerning himself. It took seven miles of walking to do that. I don't think he opened every scripture and showed them the things concerning himself because not every scripture shows you things concerning himself. So just go look at the ones that concern him. You are not a follower of the old of a 4,000-year-old written text. You're a follower of a man named Jesus. If the scripture shows you Jesus, then read it and feast on it and enjoy it. <laughs> so you want to know what God looks like. And John really doubles down, man. John in John chapter 1 goes, No man has ever seen God at any time, but we have beheld his glory. And you go, what's John saying? John's saying, hey, I was raised in a culture where we know you don't get to see God. If you see God, you die. He goes, but I saw him and his name was Jesus. That's pretty powerful. That's what leads you to John 14 where, where Philip goes, just show us the Father. And Jesus goes, Philip, how long have I got to be with you? You realize if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here's four verses that say that better than I can ever say it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In English, by the way, this is the only book of the Bible that starts with the word God. There's a fun little piece of trivia, little tidbit for you. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has. And this is the, really the, the whole reason I wanted to read this was this line. He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So if you really want to start to unpack your inheritance, look at Jesus. But for tonight, what, what really draws me is that third verse. If you want to know what God looks like, look at verse 3. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. I think this would help if we could read the Bible this way. Put Jesus in there, all right? Because he's the object of the pronoun. So just put his name in there. Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. Jesus is the image of God's person. Jesus upholds everything by the word of his power. And when Jesus by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. So if you want the wisdom and revelation of God, seek Jesus. You want to know the things you need to know, seek Jesus. The, the shame, the great embarrassment is that we ever assemble as people of God and don't see Jesus. We come together and talk about all kinds of stuff. And if you can go sit, and I, this, I'm not throwing rocks at churches. I don't care what people do. I'm beyond it. But I am not going to open my Bible and talk to a group of people and call it a Bible study or a church service or a sermon and not try to shine the spotlight on Jesus. What in the world are we doing if not talking about Jesus? Who are we praying to? Who are we trying to live like? Who saved us? Whose name is at the beginning of our religious title? I mean, what, what are we wearing crosses around our neck for? What is happening that Jesus is hard to find? And we wonder what people need. We need, a, we need the wisdom and revelation of who God is shown through the person of Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus is that answer.
So back to Ephesians 1. Let's land it. Let's call it in Ephesians chapter 1. Far, 21, far above principality. I know we read it a moment ago, but it's a good place to land. Jesus is at the right hand in heavenly places, the end of verse 20. Just read that in Hebrews 1. He's above principality, power, might, dominion. He's above everything that is named. And it's not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Paul knew there were multiple ages of time, and he believed. And it's hard for me to say what Paul meant here. Does he mean a post AD 70 world where there's no temple? Does he mean the age to come after you draw your last breath and your heart stops beating? Does he mean the age to come of someday 2,000 years in the future? I don't know. I think the answer might be yes to all of those because he's going to pluralize it in chapter 2. He's going to say ages. So we know he's not just talking about one time period. So Jesus is over all of it, and he's put everything under his feet. And then look at this. He gave Christ to be head over all things to the church, but that's a bad Greek translation. He gave Christ to be head over all things for the sake of the church. What a statement. Jesus is head over all things for the sake of his church. The church is his body, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of Christ. Man, the church is the fullness of Christ, then we ought to look like it. And we ought to love like it. And we ought to act like it. And if we're not, it ought to be the thing that drives us is to say we are the body of Christ. What would, what's he look like? You know that whole thing of some, you're the only Jesus some people will ever see. Um, first of all, I don't believe that. Um, I, don't, I believe that Christ can reveal himself in spite of all of our foolishness. So thank God you're not the only Jesus people see. Um, but I also think that the principle, there is some truth to the principle because you are the extension of what Christ is on this earth. And that's not meant to condemn. It's meant for you to take it very serious. I think that's the simplicity of that. He goes, is that supposed to scare me? That I'm the No, it's supposed to motivate you. <laughs> you are the fullness of Christ on the earth. Why would that freak you out? It's time to go live like it. And if we go live like it, what would that do to the world? Let's close it with prayer by putting a little prayer, a, a little water on top of the seed. And let that soak into your soul, and let's just let the Holy Spirit do what he'll do. Be, Father, you're so good. You're, you are, as Paul said to the Colossians, the mystery of God that's revealed in the knowledge of Jesus. So I just pray wisdom and revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation tonight. We've, we've got a head full of knowledge, and I've said a bunch of stuff, and we've heard a lot of things, but the reality is that we got to take the theology and we got to put it into practice. And to do that, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to love like Jesus. We want to be as Jesus. And Father, that's not going to happen because we have knowledge, but it is going to happen when we open the eyes of our heart to see people the way you see them. Teach us how to do that. If Paul had to pray it over the church at Ephesus, he'd probably pray it over the church of America. So we pray it over this room and over everyone who listens. Open our hearts so that we see a revelation of your wisdom. And this is you giving us revelation. We don't pray it down. We just receive it for those who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.